It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Previously on Fox News Rewind, 9-11. Osama bin Laden was born in Saudi Arabia to a very large, wealthy family. John O'Neill was doing as much as he can to convince people in Washington, to convince people in uh, the FBI chain of command uh, that the focus should be on Osama bin Laden. Simultaneous explosions at U.S. embassies in Kenya and Tanzania left more than 200 people dead and more than 5,000 injured. The United States launched an attack this morning on one of the most active terrorist bases in the world. It is located in Afghanistan and operated by groups affiliated with Osama bin Laden. It's the two suicide bombers that blew a 40 by 40 foot hole in the side of the ship. Airplanes have been uh, his terrorist weapon of choice in the past. The people who knock these buildings down will hear all of us soon. These carefully targeted actions are designed to disrupt the use of Afghanistan as a terrorist base of operations. It was during that ceasefire that Osama bin Laden, we are told, made it over the White Mountains into Pakistan. There can be no safe haven for Osama bin Laden. Episode 6, Operation Neptune Spear. The best information we have, and this information is brand new, uh, just within hours, is that Osama bin Laden escaped during the phony ceasefire last week. Uh, It was during that phony ceasefire. It was always a ruse. They never intended to surrender. It was always a ploy. It was during that ceasefire that Osama bin Laden, we are told, made it over the White Mountains into Pakistan. I think in our coverage, we're finding the leadership was an important question. Chief political anchor and anchor and executive editor of Special Report on the Fox News Channel. Brett Bear. And one that, you know, the military couldn't answer. I mean, they they thought they had him a few times and they, they you know, couldn't give us enough of the intel that uh, where the, where they thought he was. But we were spending a lot of time and focus in, in the mountains there uh, in Tora Bora. I pledge to all of you that I will do everything in my power to fulfill the oath that I have just taken. Thank you very much. Well, fortunately, we did have better coordination of uh, intelligence. Former White House Chief of Staff, CIA Director, and Secretary of Defense, Leon Panetta. So when I became a CIA Director, there there really was an effort to try to better coordinate information among the different uh, intelligence agencies and to share that information. Uh, but there was no question in my mind that The most important mission we had was to make sure not only that we went after those responsible for 9-11, but that we did everything possible to make sure that uh, the United States would not again be attacked uh, by terrorists as they did on 9-11. Law enforcement officials say the Saudi exile is at the center of a web of international terror that reaches from the Mideast and Africa to Europe, the U.S., and throughout Asia. 
But his exact whereabouts in his adopted country of Afghanistan is anybody's guess. It was one of these great sort of sort of investigative journalist uh, detective stories. Fox News senior foreign affairs correspondent Greg Pelcott. Where is he? Where, you know, it almost reminded me of the old uh, Elvis sightings uh, stories, you know, looking for looking for Elvis Presley coming back from his grave. But we kind of didn't think he was in his grave. There were there were stories that he was ill. There were stories that he was uh, incapacitated. And I think they were actually correct. In Tora Bora, after they were surrounded by the U.S. troops. Former FBI supervisory special agent Ali Soufan. He sent a couple of his bodyguards carrying his satellite phone in order to kind of like us focus on as if he's going in one direction and he took only two uh, of his very trusted bodyguard and he went escaped in a totally different direction he ended up on uh, the afghani pakistani border uh, from pakistan he went to a location that was set up to him by Khalid Sheikh muhammad he stayed in that location for you know a few you know uh, for a period of time Bin Laden's narrow escape from Tora Bora was a devastating blow to the intelligence community. Co-director of the Center for International Security and Cooperation at Stanford University, Amy Zegert. It was clear we were close. Bin Laden, uh, had we know, uh, thought he was going to get captured. Um, he wrote his last will and testament. A fantastic team of, uh, of uh, U.S. Army uh, soldiers um, in 2004 in a round host, right around the same stomping grounds that just three years prior, uh, Al-Qaeda was using as a base. So they were going over and going over, but they realized they were right up against the border with Pakistan. And I remember one of the young soldiers, you know, pointing over to me and saying, Pakistan's over there. We kind of think he's over there, but we can't go there. My mission uh, directly from the President of the United States was to do everything necessary to uh, go after and find uh, bin Laden and bring him to justice. Uh, And uh, it was very clear that that was uh, one of our primary missions was to, in in addition to obviously all of the other work we were doing uh, on gathering intelligence and intelligence operations, uh, was to do whatever we could to try to track and find uh, bin Laden there was uh, information that was generated from, you know, interrogations about uh, a person um, uh, who basically said, if you want to reach Osama bin Laden, one Qaeda members, he said, if I want to reach Osama bin Laden, I'll go to Ahmed al-Kuwaiti. Now, um, that was very interesting because um, Ahmed al-Kuwaiti was always... He's the courier of Osama bin Laden. Ahmed al-Kuwaiti was always uh, thought of as not important. And Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, after he was tortured, after he was, uh, you know, he went through 183 sessions of waterboarding, he continued to say, first, he doesn't know where bin Laden is, even though he's the one who picked up the location where bin Laden has to stay. And also, at the same time, he continued to say that Ahmed al-Kuwaiti is a nobody, even though Ahmed al-Kuwaiti is exactly like him, a Balushi, Pakistani, born in Kuwait, and KSM personally selected him to be the courier of Osama bin Laden. So some smart analysts at the CIA were like, why KSM, after all this, still trying to protect al-Kuwaiti and fool us that he's not important? It was a challenging effort. Uh, you know, for 
10 years. A lot of leads had been followed that led nowhere. Uh, and there were even some that had kind of given up on the hope of ever finding bin Laden. In August uh, of, I think it would, would have been uh, 2010, uh, I, had, I had assembled a task force at CIA uh, to do nothing else but to uh, focus on the hunt for bin Laden. Uh, and they did that. Uh, and they, they were looking at uh, a number of different strategies uh, to try to see if we could find a way to locate uh, bin Laden. So they started following al-Kuwaiti, and Kuwaiti eventually led them to the location where bin Laden is um, staying at in Abaraba. We were having a staff meeting at the CIA and uh, they asked to uh, to stay back uh, because they had something to tell me. Uh, and so they did. And at that point, they said that they had located these couriers in a town called Peshawar in Pakistan. Uh, and using surveillance had tracked them uh, to a compound in a place called Abbottabad. There were various well-placed stories that he was somewhere up and down, mostly up and down that, uh, that border between uh, Afghanistan and Pakistan. But no one, no one would believe that he found his uh, final home uh, in a town that is not exactly the equivalent, but an equivalent of well, as if he was living in, in the village of West Point, uh, a couple miles away from uh, the West Point campus. Absolutely, bad is the name of the town. Absolutely unbelievable. And when they saw the compound that these couriers drove into, uh, it immediately raised uh, their interest because the compound was about three times the size of other compounds. It had 18-foot walls on one side, uh, 12-foot walls on another side, bob wire at the top. And most interesting, it had a 7- to 8-foot wall on the third floor of this compound. Abbottabad is kind of a, a as close as you can get in, in Pakistan, to a tourist area where people retire there because of the beauty of the mountains. Uh, and so to have a 7- to 8-foot wall on the third floor uh, raised some real issues as to why that was the case. We then were able to uh, to determine that there was a family that was located on that third floor. Uh, we checked the uh, clothes on the clothesline uh, and determined the number of members of the family uh, that were there, and it matched the number of members that we knew were in the, in the bin Laden family. When that information was provided to me, uh, it really was clear that for the first time in, in 10 years, we finally had some breakthrough information on where Bin Laden could possibly be located. Everybody had their own opinion. Co-anchor of Fox News Channel's America's Newsroom, Bill Hemmer. And nobody quite knew. There was a place east of Kandahar called Tarnak Farms, which we all came to understand. That's the video you see of the guys diving through tires in the dust and practicing their aims with their rifles, etc. Um, that was the terror camp for Osama bin Laden. 
there was a place many, many hours away to the north and east uh, in the Afghan mountains uh, along the Pakistan border called Tora Bora. And there were routes and passageways that we now well understand that villagers would help transport you through these towns at whatever altitude you needed, 15,000, 18,000 feet. You pick it, they will take you there. And bin Laden had the network and the ability to take himself and a few of his fighters around him to get to Tora Bora, to survive intense U.S. bombing, and to escape unharmed into Pakistan. Well, I was at SEAL Team 2 before 9-11. Former member of SEAL Team 6, Rob O'Neill. And then I knew about SEAL Team 6, which is one of two tier one units in the military, and they would get the high profile mission. Everyone's going to fight, but SEAL Team 6 is going to get the highest profile mission. And if we're going to be, if I want to be on some of those missions, I need to try out. And it took a, a couple of years after September 11th to get to SEAL Team 6. I got there in 2004, and my first deployment was in 2005. The ethos, the creed, that guides every Navy SEAL says this, I do not advertise the nature of my work, nor seek recognition for my actions. I was part of the, the coalition to go rescue the lone survivor. I was in, uh, I was staying at a safe house in Jalalabad, Afghanistan, and we were trying to do intelligence and counterintelligence across border into Pakistan in case of high profile missions. Because right around 2005, it, it actually had started to wind down quite a bit. And, you know, there's a number of reasons why it spun back up, but there there, uh, it, there wasn't a lot going on. So we were trying to find Al Qaeda in in Pakistan using sources from Afghanistan. And that's when uh, four snipers from SEAL Team 10 and SEAL Delivery Vehicle Team 1 were ambushed in the Korangal Valley in Konar province. And they sent a helicopter turbine 3-3 in to uh, try to try to perform what we call a quick reaction force, a QRF, and they were hit by either RPGs or missiles, but they were shot down. They killed all 18 guys on on board, and then they needed someone to go to the crash site and try to find the snipers, either alive or dead, try to recover the bodies, but they wouldn't fly us in. So we ended up awake for about four days, climbing in some of the most, you know, this is the Western Himalaya, some of the most dangerous mountains in the world. We uh, eventually... This coalition, I mean, there was Navy SEALs and Green Berets, Army Rangers, Air Force, pretty much everyone you could think of. And, and uh, I, I didn't actually grab Marcus Luttrell. I was just part of the coalition that eventually found him in a, in a valley, and uh, we pulled him out. So my, one of my first major missions was the recovery of the lone survivor, Marcus Luttrell. And you think my story's crazy? Hear about that rescue. Because, I mean, the film didn't do that, nothing. A daytime, whatever, everything's everything. In real life, is at night. In 2009, I was actually part of the rescue of Captain Phillips from Somali Pirates. They called us. It was actually my birthday, Good Friday, April 10th. And I was at my daughter's Easter tea party at her preschool when we got a, a call that Captain Richard Phillips had been taken by Somali Pirates and they were going to, they wanted my team to go get him now. So from the time, you know, I was in Virginia Beach, I kissed my daughter, looked her in the eyes and went to, went to work. And about 15 hours and 45 minutes later, we had a full headcount in the Indian Ocean and we were able to rescue Richard Phillips on Easter Sunday uh, with some shots from our amazing snipers. Andrea and Richard have spoken. I think you can all imagine their joy and what a happy moment that was for them. They're all just so happy and relieved. Um, Andrea wanted me to tell the nation that all of your prayers and good wishes 
have paid off because Captain Phillips is safe. We were able to do that because we were prepared. And the way we prepared was was obviously training in our sites all over the United States. And then what we learned in combat and how we made sure everyone knew what to do in combat and how the enemy reacted and responded to us and how we would respond to their responses. And we just got better and better. I brought the information immediately uh, to the president. We briefed him uh, on uh, what we had uh, found. Uh, we had, uh, I think we had photographs of the compound that we uh, showed the president at the time. Uh, and uh, the president uh, always very businesslike when uh, uh, information was provided to him uh, you know just just looked at all of us and said uh, it's very important now that we continue to do surveillance in order to determine whether or not bin Laden is actually located at this compound so it began a number of months of basically seven seven days 24 hour a day surveillance of that compound There was different operations around the area um, in order to identify that location, to identify the person who was staying at that mysterious location as Osama bin Laden. Uh, there was no conclusive evidence that it was a place where Osama bin Laden is staying, but the gut feeling of many of the people of the CIA that he's there. And, uh, and an operation was authorized to go in and uh, deliver deliver bin Laden the justice that he deserves. I had just finished a deployment to Afghanistan again, and I was running some of these stations again, trying to do intelligence across the border to find high value targets. But at this point in 2011, I pretty much assumed Osama bin Laden was gone and we're never going to hear from him again. We had just gotten back from a deployment. We were on a training trip to Miami. We were trying to dive. We were doing combat diving and trying to invent new tactics because we figured a big threat would be the ships, the mother ships in um, off the coast of Somalia, we're trying to figure out a way to dive and, and potentially um, intervene and get on these ships. And when we got a call for some of the senior guys to head back from Miami to Virginia Beach. So this is April of 2011. The uh, way the operation uh, was conducted was that uh, because it was a covert operation uh, pursuant to uh, the laws of the country, uh, I, as CIA director, was required to uh, to conduct the operation uh, itself, uh, and we obviously uh, were using the SEALs, Navy SEALs, to conduct the mission itself of going into Pakistan uh, and uh, ultimately uh, rappelling down into this compound. They sat about 28 of us down in a room and the way it started, they wouldn't let the, any of the other guys from from the team in the room except for the 28 they picked. And the way it was presented to us was we found a thing and this thing is in a house and this house is in a bowl. And this bowl is in these mountains in a, in a country and you guys are gonna go get this thing and you're gonna bring it back to us and you're gonna show it to us. And that's how it started. And so we asked them, what's the thing? And they said, we can't tell you. Well, where's the house? Can't tell you. What country is this? We can't tell you. How are we getting there? We can't tell you. We assumed because it was um, right around 
the Arab Spring, where people started rising up against their government, started in Tunisia, worked its way over to Egypt and then into Libya, we assumed they had found Gaddafi. So we're getting our, our gear ready all week for Libya. And then they brought us to a brief uh, that Friday. And they said, go home, have a night with your families and come back Sunday and we'll tell you what's going on. The mission itself uh, obviously had a lot of risks. Uh, and it was, uh, it was a tough decision for the president to make uh, because there were a lot of questions about uh, how much opposition we might run into since we weren't telling the Pakistanis about what we were doing. Uh, also, whether or not bin Laden was actually there, even though we thought we had some pretty good intelligence uh, from his couriers uh, that he might well be located there. Uh, we never had 100% information on his location. Uh, so there were a number of risks uh, involved in the operation. And from the Fox News Podcasts Network, stay on top of the latest news and information from Fox News. Listen and download the Fox News Hourly Update on your time. The trending stories you need anytime you want it. Listen and download now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. When we came back to work on Sunday, we got in vans. They put four guys per van and we were driving down. I was in, in the back of the van sitting next to my boss and I said, um, this, this isn't Gaddafi. They found Bin Laden. And he looked at me and said, that's exactly what I was thinking. And we started to compare notes. We finally got down there to this uh, base in North Carolina. We walked into a room. With, they had armed security. They locked the door. They didn't let the security guys in. And um, the commanding officer came in. And I'll never forget him saying, the reason you guys are here is because this is as close as we've ever been to Osama bin Laden. They brought in the team from the agency, the three-letter agency that found him. They explained to us in depth how they found him. And I'll never forget, there's a, there's a woman that's the famous intelligence officer. They called her Maya in Zero Dark Thirty. And I, it seemed really legitimate the first time I heard anyone say the word Abbottabad. And that's what she said, Abbottabad, Pakistan. And it's like, wow, this is, this is real. They found him. And, you know, they had a site set up where we could train they had models that we could look at and discuss contingencies, but the training was more of just to show the powers that be, the people making the decisions, that we could do it. So on the day of the operation itself, we had established an operations headquarters at Langley at uh, CIA headquarters. Uh, and uh, I was located there at Langley uh, along with uh, not only my key staff, but we also had the head of special forces who was there as well. Uh, and we were in direct communication with Admiral Bill McRaven, who was the uh, commander of the SEAL mission that uh, was actually conducting the operation itself. Uh, and at the same time, we were feeding that information to the Situation Room uh, in the White House, where the President, Secretary of State, the National Security Advisor, uh, Secretary of Defense, and key, other key players, that's where they were located. So we were essentially feeding that information to them as the mission proceeded. And so we trained for maybe two, two weeks, um, some in North Carolina, then we went out west to another place, trained there, and then we forward staged to Jalalabad, Afghanistan, where we have an airfield. And we were basically waiting for what we call the green lights because there was a few 
options, bombing the place, a couple different types of munitions, and then us. And then we did get the call on a, on a Friday night that we'd been given the green light. And we were either going to go Saturday or Sunday. President Obama had been at the White House Correspondents' Dinner that night. Fox News Sunday anchor Chris Wallace. Cracking jokes, uh, lacerating uh, Donald Trump uh, over the birther conspiracy. No one is prouder to put this birth certificate matter to rest than the Donald. And that's because he can finally get back to focusing on the issues that matter. Like, did we fake the moon landing? See, but, but, you know, he was there as if he had nothing more on his mind than attending a, a, a black tie dinner. We got a, a brief, the final brief from Admiral Bill McRaven, who I'm convinced was born to give that brief and to be the overall commander of the mission. We, um, we, after the brief, we got our gear ready. We had a fire going out in the fire pit. We'd been to this base quite a bit, kind of talking through everything. And then, uh, you know, we put the gear on. I was able to make a few phone calls home. Um, th- our families didn't know where we were. They just knew that we were somewhere. And I called pretty much everyone on the list and uh, basically sort of told them goodbye, but I didn't want to violate any of the secrecy. They could kind of tell something was up. These SEALs were going into Pakistan in the middle of the night, two helicopters. Uh, It took about an hour and 40 minutes for them to go from Jalalabad in Afghanistan, the base there, uh, into Pakistan uh, to get to the compound. We got on the helicopters that we launched and we knew it was a 90 minute flight to get to the uh, compound, to get to Osama bin Laden's house. 90 minutes to get there, and we, but we didn't know if the technology worked. We didn't know if um, Pakistan has some pretty good air defense systems. We knew that if they spotted us, they could shoot us down. But we also knew that worrying about getting shot down wasn't going to stop the missiles. And, and I've le- learned early on in life, if your worries aren't going to affect any outcome, stop wasting your energy. I'm sitting on a, a tripod camping chair in this helicopter. And guys all around me were doing different things. They were Some guys put in headphones and were listening to music. Some guys fell asleep, which I found pretty incredible that they were actually asleep on the ride to Bin Laden's house. And I was counting. I learned as a sniper um, to keep your mind occupied, count from zero to a thousand, and then count from a thousand to zero. And I had uh, the the dog, Cairo, laying next to me and I was counting. And we had a 90 minute flight to go in. Everything was going fine. We were fortunate to have the four best helicopter pilots in the world. We banked to the south. 80 minutes in, so we're uh, 10 minutes away from Bin Laden's house. We banked to the south, and I know it sounds Hollywood, but in the middle of counting, and I still don't remember how I remembered verbatim this, but um, I was counting. I was like 556, 557. Freedom itself was attacked this morning by a faceless coward, and freedom will be defended. And I don't remember, I don't know how I remembered it, but uh, I, instead of counting, I just kept saying that over and over. Freedom itself was attacked this morning by a faceless coward and freedom will be defended. That's what President Bush said on 9-11 about the attacks. And it kind of sunk in there. Wow, this is, this is real. I'm on this mission and we're going to kill him. The scariest moment of that mission was when the helicopters were located over the compound. Because it had been hot that day uh, in Abbottabad, the heat from the ground came up and stalled one of the engines on the helicopter. Uh, and there was, uh, thank God, 
uh, a great pilot who was able to settle the, the helicopter down, uh, even though the tail went up on one of the walls around the compound. And I remember at that moment, you know, with, uh, you know, my stomach and my throat at that point, uh, asking Bill McRaven, what the hell's going on? The only time the perfect plan exists is in the planning room. Once you go to do your job, it seems like something will go wrong. And naturally it did. My team was supposed to go to the rooftop of the main building after we dropped off some snipers, a guy with a machine gun, the dog, and an interpreter. And as soon as we dropped them off outside, the helicopter, my helicopter that I was in, went up to go to the roof and then came right back down. And I didn't know it at the time, but the, the first helicopter had crashed, crash landed in the front yard. The, the pilot flying that, that one realized that at a point there was too much of an updraft and he had to put it down in the front yard, which he did. Um, my helicopter pilot was basically telling us, get out now. And it did, you know, again, I remember putting a foot down on the ground and, and, and just thinking to myself, I guess we'd start the war from here. Bill, to his credit, never missed a beat. He said, uh, we've called in backup helicopters. They're going to come in. We're going to breach through the walls of that compound. The mission is going forward. We knew that as I was looking, so we're outside of the house, I was looking at, at the house, off to the left, there was double doors that we knew were there, so we were gonna go to that. We put a bomb on it, a big, it was a seven foot charge of C6, which is a lot of firepower. Put it on the door, blew it up, and it opened like a tin can, um, but behind it was a brick wall. So it wasn't even a door, and, and the breacher said, failed breach, this is bad. But the rest of us were thinking, no, this is good. That's a fake door. Nobody does that. He's in there. We told him as a courtesy, now we're going to blow up the carport, which is another set of double doors right by the house that we knew opened because through intelligence, we had seen cars going in and out. And they said, don't blow it up. We'll just open it. And the door opened and a thumb came out with a glove that I recognized. Now, I didn't know they crashed at the time. But again, sometimes in life, it doesn't matter how you got there. You're just there. We'll talk about it later if we live. The doors open. We went inside. There was some gun gunfire going on. My guys were already in a, in a fight. Um, obviously, the loud helicopter crash, and then we went in the house. Uh, there was gunfire uh, at the beginning, uh, which uh, told us that there had obviously been some resistance to the attack. Uh, and then there was about 20 minutes of silence, uh, the longest 20 minutes in my lifetime. As I walked in the house, because they had dropped us off outside, the most of the other team was in front of me going down a long hallway on the first floor of Bin Laden's house. We were expecting the um, the house to blow up. If anyone's going to martyr himself and blow up his entire family when we're in the house, it's Bin Laden. So I was looking down a long hallway, kind of going into a room looking for bombs up on the ceiling and watching my guys knowing they should blow up at any time, but they weren't worrying about it because their worries aren't going to matter. We got to keep going and watching them uh, thinking slow is smooth, smooth is fast. I'm so proud of these guys. We did get to a stairwell where the woman who found Bin Laden said, I don't know where the stairwell is, but when you find it, you will run into Khalid Bin Laden, who is his 20-year-old uh, son. He will be armed. And if you take care of him, you might get a shot at the big guys, is the way she put it. We did go up the stairs. I, I had six or seven guys in front of me, maybe. And um, they ran into Khalid bin Laden. They actually 
there was a, a, a conversation that confused Khalid. He came out with a gun, exposed himself, and the guy in front shot him and killed him. We went up the stairs to the second floor, and that's when most of the guys in front of me, ex- everyone except for one guy peeled off to the left and to the right to clear those rooms on the second floor that left um, the guy in front of me, who we called the point man, and me. So he was the number one man. I was the number two man. And my job was to um, control, not control him, but keep a, a positive contact on his shoulder so that he could look forward and not have to worry about looking back. He doesn't want to drop security on what we're looking at up the stairs. And what that was up the stairs was a curtain um, that was like a door, but it's, just, it's it was more of a curtain. And my hand was on his shoulder waiting for more guys. And he started saying stuff to me. He didn't know it was me, but he knew it was one of his guys. He started saying, um, we got to go now. We have to go now. He could see people moving behind the curtain. And he was assuming those were the suicide bombers. That, but, but we can beat them if we go now. And uh, he, he convinced me to go. I gave him a squeeze. And I, I remember I can close my eyes and see it anytime I want. And in my case, it wasn't bravery. It was more of a, okay, we're going to blow up now. I'm tired of thinking about it. So we went up the stairs, he moved the curtain out of the way, and he uh, he pushed back who he thought were suicide bombers, which is a, a, just incredible gallantry to, if he'll blow up, he'll absorb the blast for the guy behind him to get the shot. So he, he sort of tackled those people because he went straight, I went right into a, an open door and three feet in front of me was Osama bin Laden standing up. He had his hands on his wife, Amal, on her shoulders, who was right in front of him. And I don't know if he was using her for a shield, but I remember looking at him thinking, he's taller than I thought and skinnier than I thought. Um, that his, his beard is gray, not that dark you always see on TV, but he's not surrendering. He's a threat. He's got to be wearing a suicide vest. And, and all this happened in about a second. And um, I had to treat him as a suicide bomber, which is to shoot him in the head, which I did twice. And then he fell down and I shot him again. Bill McRaven came came across and said, I, I think we have a Geronimo, which was the code word for, uh, for getting Bin Laden. Uh, and, and there were a few more minutes and he came back and said, we have a Geronimo, which meant that they had gotten Bin Laden. I moved Amal out of the way. so. Osama bin Laden was dead at the foot of his bed. I moved her to the right side of the bed and put her on on the bed to get her out of the way. Uh, his two-year-old son was there, and I remember looking at this two-year-old son and thinking, as a father, this poor kid's got nothing to do with this. And I picked him up, and I put him, him on the bed next to his mom. Other Navy SEALs were now coming in the room, and I was standing there. One of my guys came up to me and said, um, are you okay? And I said, I, I think so what do we do now? And he said, now we find the computers. We do this every night, hundreds of times. And I said, you're right, I'm back. Holy crap. And he said, yeah, you just killed Osama bin Laden. Your life just changed. Now let's get to work. Having obviously been very tense about uh, the operation, uh, about whether or not we would actually find bin Laden, uh, whether or not something might possibly go wrong, uh, during that entire mission, uh, all of all of that pressure suddenly uh, was relieved when we heard that uh, we had gotten Bin Laden. But it wasn't over at that point either, because they had to then uh, uh, they had to call in the backup helicopters. Uh, they had to uh, put uh, Bin Laden's body onto the helicopter. 
retrieve all of the individuals involved in the mission. They had also gone and tried to uh, gather as much intelligence as possible uh, at the compound itself. They brought all of that uh, back to the helicopters. Uh, and uh, as they took off, they also blew up the helicopter that had gone down so it wouldn't fall into the wrong hands. I did assist with the pictures of bin Laden. Uh, then I, I went downstairs to try to find the computers. We found all kinds of stuff, everything from, from hard drives, external hard drives, compact disks, all kinds of intel that we're gathering up to bring out. We, we put it in bags and then you know certain people are in charge of the bags and they're gonna bring it out. I went back upstairs, they had put bin Laden in a body bag and then I helped three other guys carry him out. We uh, walked out of the, walked him down the stairway, walked him out in front of the house. And then it was time, now it's time to get going. Now it's time to leave. We survived the mission that we weren't supposed to survive, but now we can leave. And we, I kind of went back in, we're gathering the guys up like, hey, it's time, it's time to go. We got to figure out how to blow up this helicopter in the front yard. And we got to call another helicopter to come get us, which they did. Two guys went outside, put explosives on the helicopter and blew it up. We called in another, um, a Chinook a big army helicopter they flew in and it's kind of cool to think about on this mission to kill bin laden seal team six actually rescued seal team six they came in we um the helicopter that we flew in on the first group got on with the body and we got on the second helicopter and flew out we were concerned once the helicopters got back in the air that the pakistanis might very well scramble uh, their f-16 fighter planes so we continued to be nervous so now we're leaving uh, on a mission that we're supposed to die. And if we can live for 90 minutes, if we can cross the border of Afghanistan and Pakistan, we can live for 50 more years. And now we're flying and flying as fast as that helicopter can go. Now we can be shot down by Pakistan. If they scramble jets are gonna shoot us with missiles. They gotta know something's up. But worrying about the missiles again, is it gonna help? So we were just sitting there on a, on a helicopter and I started my stopwatch and I'm, I'm watching the minutes count up. I got to get to 90 minutes, but it's been, okay, it's been 10 minutes. Now it's been 20 minutes. It's been 30 minutes. Now it's 40 minutes. Now it's 50 minutes. And I love sports analogies because, I, you know, just the whole team, teamwork mindset is, you know, 50 minutes in, it's like watching a, a no hitter get pitched at the top of the seventh at Yankee Stadium. You know, I'm not going to say anything, but he's, I don't want to jinx him. Now it's been 60 minutes. It's been 70 minutes. And now it's been 80 minutes. Then my favorite sports analogy is Miracle on Ice when the Team USA hockey team's beating the Russians and you can hear them counting down. It's a Lake Placid a game they're supposed to lose big, but they're winning. And you can hear the crowd, 10, 9. We could still screw this up. We're all nervous, 6, 5. And then uh, 85 minutes in, the um, pilot came over the radio and said, all right, gentlemen, for the first time in your lives, you're going to be happy to hear this. Welcome to Afghanistan. This is a Fox News alert. The White House is saying that President Obama will be making an extraordinary statement at the bottom of the hour. That's 30 minutes from now. The White House has not said what the president will be speaking about. But it is highly unusual for the president to be speaking this late on a Sunday night. Whatever the matter is, and we don't know, it is certainly urgent. We got a note late in the day. Fox News correspondent at large. Geraldo Rivera. That the president of the United States would be addressing the nation at 
nine or 10 o'clock, I forget, in the, in the evening. And we started thinking, what in the world would the president of the United States be addressing the nation? What's important enough for President Obama, who's a very laid back guy who kept a pretty casual schedule? Why in the world would this president be addressing the nation at that hour on a Sunday, Sunday night? And as the information comes out, our Mike Emanuel, one of the most skilled uh, White House correspondents in this town, is, in, is at the White House or is about to arrive at the White House um, uh, monitoring all of the wires. We are b- big hockey fans. Fox News congressional correspondent Chad Pergram. Washington Capitals. And the Capitals were in the playoffs at that stage. And Alex Ovechkin one of the greatest goal scorers in hockey history, scored a goal for the Capitals against Tampa Bay with just a second or so left to send the game into overtime. Otherwise, I probably would have gone to bed, which I don't go to bed that early, but I was going to go to bed that early that night. The game started at like 5 or something, and this is like, you know, 8 o'clock, 8.30. And I noticed on my BlackBerry at the time that they took the lid off the pool at the White House. Now, what that means is what they, they, they tell the press, okay, we're not going to have anything else. The president's not going to appear anymore or anything like, like that. That's it. You can go home. And very, very rarely do they take the lid off the pool. And it's even exceedingly rarer for it to happen on uh, the, uh, you know, a Sunday night. That was striking. And so at first I didn't pay much attention. I said, well, that's a little bit weird. And I'm still watching the hockey game. And then it occurs to me, well, whatever this is, and as I start to see some of the email traffic, this is pretty big. This might be, is the, again, has there been a terrorist attack? Has something happened to the president, the vice president? Has, you know, what, what is somebody in the family? What, what, what has happened here? So I ran upstairs and fired up my computer and just started calling and emailing people. And pretty quickly, I was able to get it in the lane that it had something to do with Osama bin Laden. Had he been captured, had he been killed, whatever. And I had a couple of sources who were saying to me, we're confident that he has been killed. And I told this story to a friend years ago and she, and she said to me, she said, oh, so you put that on the air right away. And I said, hell no, no way. This is one of the biggest stories of all time. I'm not gonna put that on the air right now. I, I, I have to be right about that. I mean, I mean, imagine if you screw that up. It is highly unusual for the president to be speaking this late on a Sunday night, whatever the matter is, and we don't know, it is certainly urgent, perhaps concerning events over the last 24 hours in Libya. So we're thinking, what the hell could it be? Could it be Muammar Gaddafi, who was a fugitive at the time? Could it be uh, that they finally cornered Gaddafi? And I said, nah, you know, Gaddafi's important, but he's not that important uh, to deserve a presidential address. It could be a press conference the next day from, uh, you know, from the State Department. If, uh, you know, that would be the appropriate way to handle something, news of that nature. So it was not Gaddafi. White House aides uh, I spoke with said they were not going to give away guidance in terms of specific topic, but they did say it was big and suggested that we get in here this evening. And so here we are at 1030 on a Sunday evening waiting the president of the United States and not quite clear what he will say at this point. Okay, uh, did they use the word big, Mike? I'm, I'm curious. Did they specifically say big? Uh, not exactly. They just said uh, you probably want to get to the White House for this one. So I took that to be very big. So I continued to call an email, continued to call an email. Finally, I got somebody who said, call me, this number. I called them. And the president was supposed to come out and talk. This is President Obama at the time. And it kept getting delayed when he was going to talk. It was like a light bulb went off in my head. I said, what if it's bin Laden? 
Bin Laden had been missing at that point for 10 years. And so people started saying, you think, you think? So we started frantically calling. And I speculated on the air that I, I think it could be Bin Laden. And my source said, and again, I've gotten this from other people, but then this is somebody who uh, told me at the time that they had been on the call with the president. So this is a pretty limited universe of people, but that's direct custody of the information. And they said, Chad, the president is going to come out and announce that we have killed Osama bin Laden. We think, we think, what? What do we think? If you look at the video, you actually see one of the stagehands in the D.C. Bureau come across and you hear him off mic, Chad Pergram, and he hands a card to Rivera and he announces it live on the air. Chad, one of our reporters is Bin Laden, may, no, I, I, I will not report, but I will say that it is possible that the terror mastermind who killed so many Americans striking from his bases in Afghanistan, Osama Bin Laden, something may have happened to him. And when it comes to weighing the devil in Libya with the devil in Afghanistan, I'm telling you, we've got a much stronger beef and a much more profoundly important national security interest in seeing the terror mastermind who killed so many Americans on September 11th, 2001, finally exiting the scene. And then Chad Pergram, the congressional correspondent here, who was producer at that time, has confirmed that Osama bin Laden is dead. That we got Bin Laden. Senior Capitol Hill producer Chad Pergram confirms Osama Bin Laden is dead. Can it be, ladies and gentlemen? Could it be? This Chad is one of the best in the business. He really is an extraordinary person. I just, I'm, I'm, hold it, hold it, hold it, hold it, hold it. Bin Laden is dead. Bin Laden is dead. Confirmed, urgent, confirmed. Bin Laden is dead. Multiple sources. Osama bin Laden is dead. Happy days. Happy days, everybody. To think that we got him after all the people who had died pursuing him, after all he had done, was truly, you know, to have it happen live on my watch on a Sunday night in Washington, D.C., where I never hang out at all, was, it's... I can't say that it was, uh, it evened the score, but to see our Navy SEALs bringing this punk, this horrible mass murderer to justice was one of the most life-affirming things that ever, ever has happened to me. Getting Osama bin Laden came to be seen as, you know, the, the, the absolute indispensable element. Fox News senior political analyst, Britt Hume. Um, of winning, if you will, uh, against al-Qaeda. And so long as he was at large, there was a sense that it was, you know, a job that was not yet complete. I, I felt that there was justice. Um, he got what he deserves. Um, I don't think I was happy. I wasn't sad. I was just felt like the right thing, you know, like a sense of calmness about it. Um, I think... Uh, I was still concerned about Al-Qaeda. Bin Laden is only a person, but 
Al-Qaeda will continue um, and they will consider him as a martyr. We were able to show Admiral McRaven the body. We showed the woman who found bin Laden the body. We did transport him somewhere else uh, to the Bagram Airfield in a hangar where they had the um, federal law enforcement, the smart guys doing uh, DNA tests. We confirmed it that it was bin Laden. I remember I was uh, in my office and to me it was, uh, I only slept about five minutes. Host of the Brian Kilmeade Show and co-host of Fox and Friends, Brian Kilmeade. I could not wait to get in and talk about it and to see the celebrations in the street in D.C. and New York, especially in light of the way things now, was a great relief. Remember, you could say what you want about turn the other cheek, but you can't turn the other cheek when they're both still being targeted. My daughter was at Boston College. Co-host of Fox and Friends on the Fox News Channel, Steve Ducey. And she just told me the story last weekend. Uh, when the news came out, uh, she was in a um, she was in the library, the big library at Boston College, where you could hear a pin drop. And my daughter was so excited. She she stood on a table in the library at Boston College where it was absolutely silent and she screamed at the top of her lungs, we got Bin Laden, he's dead. And the whole place erupted. So we got to the White House and first of all, I couldn't find the camera crew. There was, crowds were so thick and I had no White House credentials at all. But I went to the Secret Service guys at the, at the guarding the entrance to the White House and I said, Man, you got to let me in. I got to find my crew. I don't know where the hell they are. They may be on the other side of the building. You got to let me cut through the White House to get to the other side of the building to find my crew. They said, We can't let you in the White House. You don't have any credentials. It's not arranged. Then finally, the guy says, Okay, come on. So he takes me through the White House, the empty White House. My son Peter was a new, a new hire at Fox, and he was based in Washington, D.C. And when it was announced that uh, bin Laden was shot. Everybody, there were there were thousands of people who crowded into Lafayette Square across the street from the White House, and they were chanting USA, USA. And Geraldo was actually um, broadcasting live. He did not know that Peter Ducey was behind him, but uh, people were were climbing all over Geraldo, and Peter was essentially uh, pulling people off, trying to help Geraldo and and the Fox News crew. Uh, do their live telecast because, you know, it was the best news. People had waited for that. And finally, it was the news everybody wanted to hear. Uh, so we uh, we finally got to the other side of the White House, found the camera crew. And it was like New Year's Eve. It was the celebration of, of our time. It was all these kids. They had left. They were all studying for finals. They'd all left uh, their books behind. All the colleges from throughout D.C., plus the GIs who happened to be in town. Uh, it was a, a, a ebullient, multiracial, diverse, uh, uh, lovely, loving crowd outside the White House. They were, they were picking people up, uh, you know, and they, they carry them in rock concerts and, and so forth. They were being, you know, just hugging me and throwing me up in the air it was... It was one of the, uh, <laughs> it was such great fun. Just thinking about it, I, I, I remember one of the most pleasant experiences. And coming at, you know, 
after 10 years of the, the bitter, smoldering resentment and uh, residue of what had happened on the 9-11 attacks to then be in front of the White House in a spontaneous celebration, uh, you know, uh, marking the, uh, commemorating not only the service of our GIs, but also the death and justice to the terror mastermind was something I'll never forget. has been served. Now, uh, what they do with his remains, I'm sure they'll be very prudent about it. Uh, John, they will, of course, honor all of the religious traditions involved, but then I would definitely suggest scattering his ashes over the uh, uh, the Indian Ocean off the shore of Pakistan. Uh, I also think, John, listening to the various reports uh, that the Pakistani intelligence services have a lot to answer for. How is it that this vaunted secret service in Pakistan that runs so much of that country missed this good job, good singing, missed this uh, this huge, uh, it sounds like a, a terror condo, uh, you know, really uh, in the tribal territories, it's true. But having spent so much time there, there's very little that goes on in that region, John, that they don't know about. Well, uh, President Obama calls President Bush Former White House Deputy Chief of Staff under President George W. Bush, Carl Rove. It tells him that uh, Bin Laden is dead. And uh, he knew how important it was to the country uh, that this action be fulfilled. And he knew how long and how hard uh, the Bush administration had worked on this. They actually brought us breakfast sandwiches. And I was eating a sandwich watching television. And I watched President Obama walk down the red carpet and say, Tonight, I can report to the American people, to the world, that the United States has conducted an operation that killed Osama bin Laden, the leader of al-Qaeda, and a terrorist who's responsible for the murder of thousands of innocent men, women, and children. It was nearly 10 years ago that a bright September day was darkened by the worst attack on the American people in our history. The images of 9-11 are seared into our national memory. Hijacked planes cutting through a cloudless September sky, the Twin Towers collapsing to the ground, black smoke billowing up from the Pentagon, the wreckage of Flight 93 in Shanksville, Pennsylvania, where the actions of heroic citizens saved even more heartbreak and destruction. And yet we know that the worst images are those that were unseen to the world. The empty seat at the dinner table, children who were forced to grow up without their mother or their father, parents who would never know the feeling of their child's embrace, nearly 3,000 citizens taken from us, leaving a gaping hole in our hearts. On September 11, 2001, in our time of grief, the American people came together. We offered our neighbors a hand, and we offered the wounded our blood. We reaffirmed our ties to each other and our love of community and country. On that day, no matter where we came from, what God we prayed to, or what race or ethnicity we were, we were united as one American family. We were also united in our resolve to protect our nation and to bring to bring those who committed this vicious attack to justice. I heard the president say Osama bin Laden. Then I looked at Osama bin Laden and I thought, how in the world did I get here from Butte, Montana? And tonight, 
Let us think back to the sense of unity that prevailed on 9-11. I know that it has at times frayed, yet today's achievement is a testament to the greatness of our country and the determination of the American people. The cause of securing our country is not complete, but tonight we are once again reminded that America can do whatever we set our mind to. That is the story of our history. Whether it's the pursuit of prosperity for our people or the struggle for equality for all our citizens, our commitment to stand up for our values abroad, and our sacrifices to make the world a safer place. Let us remember that we can do these things not just because of wealth or power, but because of who we are. One nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Thank you, may God bless you, and may God bless the United States of America. Next time on Fox News Rewind, 9-11. Flowers and candles are replacing gunfire and explosions in Paris. That's following the deadliest attack in the French capital since World War II. We should not be drawn once more into a long and costly ground war in Iraq or Syria. That's what groups like ISIL want. If you're arguing that we shouldn't be anywhere where... Um where there's going to be fighting, then what's the point of having a fighting force? It's time for American troops to come home. There are thousands of Afghans and Americans trying to get to safety, many of them having immense difficulty. 9-11 Victims Compensation Fund is something you've all worked on very hard, and the day has come. I can never repay the debt to the first responders who came down and brought stability and humanity. Every day now people wake up wondering, is this going to be a good day or is this going to be a bad day? Because I remember the bad day. The Will Cain Show is now dropping five episodes a week. Join Fox and Friends weekend host Will Cain as he tackles the latest headlines from his unique perspective, along with thought-provoking interviews with leading figures and live calls from viewers and listeners. Listen wherever you download your favorite podcasts.